This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. Welcome to the Planning Exchange, where we interview built environment professionals who are doing interesting work beyond the ordinary. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Jewell. Our 100th birthday. Whoa, what a milestone. It's been eight years since we started. Can you believe it? For those of you who don't know the story, Pete and I met at an industry function held by our main sponsor, Vipla, in 2014. And shortly after, Pete introduced me to the idea of starting a podcast. I actually found the original email the other day. We then met up for lunch and worked out the specifics. And a couple of months later, we were recording our very first episode. The hilarious thing is that I didn't even really know what a podcast was at the time and never could have anticipated how this thing would absolutely explode. We now have thousands of listeners from all over the world, our very own extraordinary audio engineer, Jack Babbage. We have four sponsors, Vipla, Ratio, One Mile Grid and Victorian Planning Reports. Have met 100 of the most interesting people in our profession and learned a hell of a lot along the way. For our 100th episode, we thought this deserved to be something different and a little out of the ordinary. We've selected four of our guests from previous interviews to reflect on their experience of the podcast and to check in and see how things have changed since their original interview. We'll be talking with Chris Avery, Liz Huey, Nicola Smith and Mark Shepard. Our first cab off the rank is Chris Avery from Deep End Consulting. Now Chris was PX1 our guinea pig in the early days, and was a very good sport, putting up with us amateurs and our singular microphone huddled together around the corner of a table with very little personal space. Even as regular podcasters, re-listening to yourself talking never gets any better, but the task in going back and reflecting on our original episode was very entertaining. How far we have come. For those who may have gotten, Chris is a principal and director at Deep End Services, where he's been since 2009 and is a specialist in property economics. Welcome back to the show, Chris. It's been eight years since we spoke to you. Thanks, Jess, and uh, nice nice to be here again after all that time. Chris, you were sensational as PX1. You were very professional. How did you enjoy, can you remember that? far away long ago but did you enjoy the did you enjoy the process i did i did um i think the technology has is somewhat more advanced um from the time that you came into my office and set up a fairly primitive recording device are you Um, saying you didn't enjoy the single microphone and sitting you know basically on each other's laps for the whole interview well it was different Well, we've never been in a social distancing, Chris, you and I, so you were sensational. Any reflections on your, I I suppose you enjoyed the podcast interview since that time? um, A tough question. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just make some, when you you were interviewed, you talked a lot about the emerging internet uh, sales for retail. You are uh, one of Australia's foremost retail analysts in terms of catchments and uh, distributions and growth areas and things like that. You talked a lot about the emerging internet uh, component of retail. Any reflections you can tell our listeners? Well, Pete, um, yeah, I think that with the e-com sales really sort of bubbled along and started sort of growing from about that time. But really, the last two years and the onset of COVID and the COVID period really accelerated the, uh, the whole trend towards e-com sales and. And what we, what we saw really from March and April 
in 2020 for the, for the next two years was a, a huge explosion in, in online sales. Um, retailers were forced into that situation and, and consumers really grabbed it. Um, and what we, what we saw was um, big growth in uh, supermarket shopping online um, and the click and collect services. So there was a huge, huge explosion there, but also in, in non-food and, and services. Um, so, you know, the supermarket groups really responded. Um, a lot of the smaller retailers in uh, takeaway food and, and restaurants were really um, had to had to respond with you know with greater use of um, delivery services. So the whole the whole way people shopped really changed significantly for about two years. Um, and look, some of that some of that growth has now flattened off based on the latest ABS stats. Um, but as of today, we're spending about eight or nine percent of our um, food food spending um, online, either with click and collect or home delivery. And uh, the non-food non-food's higher than that. It's averaging about ten percent. So you know, ten percent of all sales now in Australia, um, excluding international sales, uh, through sort of online and e-com services. I so, think there was sorry. Chris. I think there was a a point that you made in your original podcast around the success of certain businesses being um, uh, where there are the bricks and mortar approach combined with an online sales presence. Obviously, that has changed fairly substantially, I would say, since 2014. Can you talk to that at all? Is that still the case, do you think? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's this, 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 the online sales are really broken out into two groups. So you've got what they call the omni-channel, which are those that have a physical presence and an, and an online presence. And then you've got the pure play retailers who just are, are really retailing from uh, warehouses and, and distribution centres. Um, so, you know, those two are, are growing at, at, both those groups are growing at, at very strong rates. Um, you know, the omni-channel one, there are many sort of variations on that, on that delivery model. Um, and a lot of retailers are delivering, you know, from their, from their stores and a lot of the supermarkets are now setting up um, stores where they, they almost have dark sections of the supermarket and, and they're fulfilling online orders out of, out of those stores that might they might have sort of 10 or 12 across Melbourne, for example. Um, and, and, and then, then you've got the smaller retailers who are really forced into that, into the, into competing in that, in that space as well. So um, I think what that's overall across the market, you know, what we're probably seeing is a dampening of the demand for retail space. You know, the, the st really strong growth of the big shopping centres just isn't there anymore. So we're sort of seeing a flattening of supply. But I think um, the, the, the market itself is becoming more dynamic. Um, retailers are being more selective about the space they take in centres now. And they're having to balance up this, this online component and they just don't have um, the space needs that they, they used to have. Chris, Chris yeah, sorry, Jesse, I'm, talking about spatial implications, are we seeing like a cannibalisation of retail space or is it is it not that dramatic yet? In terms of you know retail hierarchies, is there... Mm. You've alluded to some of that. Can you just tease that out a little bit? Oh, look, I think that, I mean, the, it, it, there are trends. They're, they're, they're both, there's both the online, I think, industry that's affecting supply of space, but also you're seeing the traditional or the demise of some of our traditional retailers, like the department stores and discount department stores that might have spoken about eight years ago. And really the, the space growth there is, is, is almost negative now. Um, you know, Meyer are now shrinking, and David Jones are shrinking their, their footprints. So if you look at those big centres that have been at the top of our hierarchies, 
Um, they're not really growing their retail floor space anymore. They are growing in terms of their services, um, the food, the entertainment, they're going into medical and allied health services. So they're becoming more sort of community hubs. Um, they're trying to broaden their land use mix um, so that the traditional retail area of those centres is, is now pretty flat and has been for some time. And um, they're now looking at you know, hotel and accommodation and, and potentially even aged care. So there's a whole lot of things that they're now trying to bring into those centres. So um, that, that they will, they'll continue to evolve and uh, developed that way. I think it's the sub-regional centres, that sort of next tier down. Um, they're still trying to, they're, they're growing into more you know, the casual food um, restaurant areas now. So instead of the traditional food courts, they are now, the traditional food courts have really been on the decline for some time where you have the little small kiosks and things. And what those centres are now bringing in is these slow food areas. So they'll have restaurants that might have some external facing um, some higher amenity areas and they're trying to get people to come and stay longer and maybe do some shopping while they're there. So um, those sort of middle and upper tiers are really changing and they're trying to bring people in rather than just to shop for two hours, but to spend the time they're doing other things. Chris, that's a nice segue into the next question I had for you, which was um, going back to 2014. I think we, we talked about the, um, the evolution, I guess, of strip shops um, and I think you made a comment that they weren't declining, that they were evolving. Mm. Obviously, through COVID, we've seen really an explosion um, in demand for those local centres, particularly the strip um, strip shopping centres and, you know, the neighbourhood activity centres. How have you seen that play out? And do you think that's something that will continue now that we're sort of going into, I guess, a post-COVID world? Yeah, I think, look, it's a really interesting subject, Jess, and there's a lot of, a lot of components to it. And I think... Um, you're right, the strips are really thriving. They became the community hubs of our areas uh, during COVID. Um, cafes and restaurants had a, a really tough time. Um, you know, they were down 70, 80% on revenue for, for several months of 2020 and parts of 2021. But the cafes and restaurants and the latest ABS data have absolutely roared back um, nationally and particularly in Victoria. And they are now um, revenue-wise are running well above their pre-COVID level. So it's really good news for those businesses that held on. Obviously, when, you know, in all those trips, we've seen, we've seen food operators that haven't been able to, which is unfortunate. The takeaway food sector um, held up pretty well. Again, they used meal delivery um, and people are picking up from outside. So they came through pretty well. Um, we see um, some of the vacancy rates generally across most of the centres in Melbourne are a little higher than what they were pre-COVID still based on some of the recent agency surveys. Um, but those, those that are really affected tend to be in the, in the areas that have had the high, traditionally high numbers of um, overseas students or, or, or international visitors. So um, you know, places like Aquin Street and Ligon Street, uh, maybe parts of um, Bridge Road in Richmond, they've, they've tended to suffer, but the really strong centres, um, Church Street, Brighton, Mooney Ponds, um, Bentley, in, uh, Centre Road in Bentley, Smith Street, Collingwood, those centres are actually really thriving um, and have done particularly well. And I think that the other reason why these centres are thriving and will continue is because it's directly related to the demise of the CBD. And what we're seeing in the latest um, PCA occupancy survey results is that Melbourne's office, office occupancy is still only at 41%. And, and we are the laggards 
you know, of Australia, um, every other capital city is well above these rates. And until we, you know, have some proactive policies, not just by major companies, but who I think are doing their best, but also, but, but certainly the state government to get people back into their offices, um, you know, I think the CBD is going to really struggle. And that, and that struggle is really to the benefit of the strips as, as people are, you know, following the hybrid working model and, and, um, grabbing their coffee near home rather than near their traditional workplace in the CBD. So there's a big story here and, and the, the growth of the and populated strips is unfortunately related to the, to the demise of the CBD. And Chris, since 2014, has there, I know you work nationally across Australia, uh, has there been any significant shifts in planning policy related to retail or has it been pretty much the same as 2014? I know, super big question, but just a generalised answer. Yeah, um, look, the, the incre small incremental changes, uh, Peter, um, nothing really sort of game-changing um, that, that I'm aware of and can think of. Um, so, yeah, look, there's... Well, what do you think there should be, in, you know, given the very rapidly changing or yeah. other policy settings flexible enough to help this transition going along? But I guess what we, we tend to be more involved in in the growth areas and some of the precinct structure planning and, and so on um, and arguing for or against things in those areas. And I think there's still a, probably a bit too much of a prescriptive um, pr approach in, in sort of the um, floor space controls and expectations of, of, the, of what we can deliver in our growth areas and from what we see with clients is that you'd have to you have to sort of continue to maintain a really flexible approach. It's fine to put a, a structure in place, but don't try and describe everything down to the nth degree. Um, we see that interstate as well. Um, so I, th I think there's something about um, you can provide some good uh, overall constraints or opportunities for these centres, but um, you know the, the market is changing and shifting all the time, and you have to try and um, allow the market to sometimes sort these centres out and, and often they will deliver very good results without, you know, local government stepping in and, and, and dictating, um, you know, down to the square metre. I think things have improved a lot over the years, but I think there's still um, a fair way we can go there. Zay, and lastly, Chris, just wanted to finish on, are you hopeful for the future of the CBD? Um, I'm concerned at the moment, Jess. Um, I'll, I'll, I will be hopeful, but I'm concerned that um, our occupancy rates are just stubbornly staying low and, and most of the other capitals are improving theirs gradually and steadily. Ours shifted up by 2% in the last couple of months. Um, so to me, that's a real concern. If you look at the Melbourne City Council pedestrian count survey data, um, Burke Street model is still um, Tuesday to Thursday is still 40 to 45% below pre-COVID. Saturday, uh, Friday through to about Monday, it's still 25% below. And, and this is masking bigger declines during the day. The evening economy is still pretty strong, I think, because people are finding they, they want to go out after they've been home all day and they'll go into the city. But, yeah, the daytime activity is, is really low. And, yeah, I am a, I'm a little concerned about the future of the CBD and um, it is very directly related to getting people back into offices. Well, we look um, forward to interviewing you again in another eight years' time and seeing where we're at. <laughs> Before then, Jess. But let's have your all still around, Jess. Chris, um, we're really grateful for that first interview. Um, listeners, uh, Jess and I were really stumbling along. We went and saw Chris at his office, and he was super well prepared. 
He was the uh, adult in the room. He was all ready for the questions and he really helped us along. So, Chris, that was good. But one thing, since we interviewed you, we've introduced a, a little segment called Podcast Extra or Culture Corner, something our guest can recommend to our listeners. Um, anything that you've done, watched, seen, read lately that might interest our listeners, do you think? Look, one thing I can suggest, Pete, I know a lot of your listeners will already have one of these, but look, our, our family got a dog a few months ago for the, for the very first time, and um, uh, he has been fantastic. Uh, I would recommend a dog to any family that doesn't have one. It gets you out, it gets you about, uh, walks on the beach, walks down the Yarra Trail, um, and all sorts of fun things that go with owning a dog. So um, it's been good for me. It's been good for my family. I can highly recommend one. And what's the dog's name, Chris? The, the dog's name, well, um, it's very common these days. The dog's name is Freddie. Freddie. Freddie, yeah, Freddie. All right. Chris, uh, Jess, did you want to uh, farewell to uh, Chris now? I just echo everything that Pete said. Thank you for your time um, on multiple occasions now. And um, thanks for your patience. It's been great. My pleasure. And congratulations to both of you in um, getting to uh, 100 interviews. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great achievement and, and well done to you guys for sticking at it. And um, you provided a great service to many listeners out there. So well done. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants, an independent voice and trusted partner in planning, urban design, transport and waste management. Ratio supports change through projects that shape cities, neighbourhoods and places for people. See ratio.com.au for details. Next up, we're speaking with Liz Huey, who is a highly respected acoustic engineer with over 25 years of experience, who we first interviewed back in 2020 um, amongst one of the very many uh, COVID lockdowns. Welcome back to the show, Liz. It's great to have you back. Oh, thanks very much, Jess. And thanks, Peter. And I must admit, I was so excited when you invited me to be on this special episode. So thank you both. Oh, thank you for being part of it. Um, Liz, how did you enjoy your first podcast experience? And do you have any reflections on it? Um, I actually enjoyed recording it and speaking to you at the time. I didn't enjoy listening to it so much. There's something a little bit excruciating about listening to yourself prattle on about things. Um, so hopefully I can improve my performance, if you like. But I, I did really enjoy the uh, experience. Thank you. Well, well, Liz, one of the things that many people say to us after we've interviewed them, they say, oh, I wish I could have that time again to answer the questions in a different way or a better way. And I say to them, well, I wish I could have that again so we could ask better questions. So um, we, we do mumble along. But your, your podcast interview was terrific, uh, I thought, Jess, um, because you explained a lot. It was like having a tutorial in acoustics, um, you know, the different noise measurements and the different types of noise, um, you know, sharp or extended and that sort of thing and what it does for people and also some contemporary noise issues. Um, I thought it was tremendous, Jess, the same? Yeah, it was a really, really informative interview. And I think like, like you said, Pete, it was almost a tutorial. I felt like I learned so much from it. And even when I went back to re-listen to it in preparation for this, I feel like I, I learned a whole lot more again. So it was really, really good. 
Oh, great. Thank you. And Liz, since 2020, um, has there any, been any sort of changes in the world of acoustic acoustics that you can think uh, are notable or any observations you'd like to make um, two years on? I don't think there's been any change in things like acoustic theory, et cetera. But one of the big changes, obviously, has been this whole work from home during COVID. So people are probably now slightly more affected by daytime noise. You know, in the past, there have been many, uh, the noise criteria is set up, if you like, for quiet enjoyment based during the nighttime when people are more sensitive to noise. But now that we have a lot more people working from home, you could potentially say that, you know, everyone is more sensitive to noise throughout the entire daytime and evening and nighttime period. So that's probably a challenge. And then the internal acoustics of your own space, you know, working from home and then juggling um, school children, you know, other your partner or another person that you might be sharing the house with, as well as, you know, the impact from the external noise. I think that's probably been a, a big challenge for many people as well. One of the other points that you made in that original interview was your concern around um, our hearing abilities in the future, given how much we rely on headphones and, you know, the people on trams that have doof doof blasting from their headphones and you can hear them four seats away and actually hear what they're listening to. <laughs> um, given that we have all been in this work from home mode for so long and it's not looking like that will change significantly moving into the future, is that still something that concerns you given that we're now all sitting at home on our laptops with headphones on in meetings all day, every day? I think with the meetings, we are probably a little bit more cognizant about the levels that we listen to. Also, if you're not listening to music and you're listening to people talking, it's not something that you want to put up very loud. Uh, whereas with the music, you know, that's a different, a different case. So I think the work from home thing, it's important to give yourself a break from the headphones, but perhaps we, we are a little uh, aware, if you like, of, of what sort of noise levels we like to listen to other people on meetings. And if you do have a private space, you can actually put it through the speaker system rather than have headphones. Now, Liz, you're a music, musician. Um, just to remind our listeners what, what you played when you were younger and, and what you still play. I played piano and clarinet for quite a long time. Then I played percussions. And just more recently, I took up the cello. And Jess, we haven't gotten together for that duet, we promised. Oh, <laughs> I, that just came back to me as we were talking about that. <laughs> Well, we might stream that, listeners, when that happens. But, <laughs> that but, will be quite the event. <laughs> but, but Liz, I, I wanted to ask you and and um, about, and this is a very big topic, about noise and emotions and manipulation. Um, I, I've, I've got a bit of a beef at, say, football games where a team scores a goal, all of a sudden they had this bad habit of blaring out all this sort of heavy, I don't know what sort of heavy rock and roll music. and just to amp up the atmosphere and things like that. And I know noise and sound is used in other environments to manipulate emotions. Have you got any thoughts about that? The football case is, is quite an interesting one because my understanding is that it came about originally because of the matches that were played during the COVID times when there were no crowds. So you had zero atmosphere and then when you're watching on TV, they tried to provide an atmosphere by 
putting in noise of, um, you know, simulated crowd noise and then doing this music thing after the goals to try and make it more exciting. Uh, my understanding is that during the final series, everyone in the recent final series, when everyone could go to the games, people complained about that and said it actually detracted from the game because what it did was masked the actual crowd noise and the crowd cheering. So the AFL removed it halfway through um, the final series and they, they stopped doing it because of the backlash. I think the, the importance of sound in emotions is probably more, most prominent in things like movie theatres. You know, when, when you go and see a movie, if you didn't have the sound and the types of music and the types of soundscapes that they put in, you wouldn't have as much tension or comedic relief or anything in the movie. So the, the combining of sound and, and emotion isn't such a bad thing. There are probably times when the sound, if the sound itself is producing a bad reaction or a bad emotional reaction uh, due to annoyance factors, that's, you know, obviously not an ideal situation. But, you know, the use of, the use of sound and soundscapes and music tracks, et cetera, to generate emotions is probably not such a bad thing overall. I mean, Liz, you, you point to the bad noise experience. I mean, in some shops, some of the music they play, I, I think, I, I just want to get out of here. Maybe I'm just getting old and grumpy, Liz. But um, uh, soundscape and manipulation, I mean, it, it just seems like there's a lot of manipulation in the public domain now in terms of, I don't know, lighting and things like that or, or presentation. Maybe I'm just, uh, do you think I'm worrying too much about soundscapes and things like that? Yes, maybe. In in regard to those shops that play the loud music, Peter, I think that the sad fact is that they're the types of shops that don't want people your your age and my age <laughs> hanging around in. So well, at least you flatter me. You're you're far far younger than me. Oh yeah. no, I, I can't stand being in those shops either, and and I think that's the whole point. <laughs> so I do I do take your point though about the the manipulation it's probably more important to be aware that that could be going on. You know, it's like in the casinos, the use of, uh, well, the not use of, you know, natural light. So having the absence of natural light in places like that. So you don't actually know what time of day it is and you can lose track of time easily. I think if you're aware of the situation, um, then maybe you have a better control over it. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, in terms of people's expectations and sensitivity to noise being at a higher level now post-COVID. Have you, because I think one of the topics we spoke about last time was around live music and the the impact um, that, you know, a lot of residential development and high-density residential development is having, having on that industry. Has there been any or have you witnessed any real change in that industry um, coming out of COVID? The live music, industry definitely suffered a lot during COVID and I haven't witnessed any change coming out of it but I do wonder now if people who live around those areas have become acclimatized to a quieter environment and maybe there is going to be a, a period of adjustment as everything goes back to normal but I don't I don't have any evidence of you know any major changes from that. Now Liz in, in our last interview I, I, I asked you to do something um, 
Do you remember what that was? Yes, it was to look at the tram, the tram noises, because you you said that you didn't like the new horns, and you wanted the the. If it was at the bell sound of the W class, the original W class. It, it, it was for our listeners. We we have a new fleet of trams in Melbourne, and they've got uh, typically trams have to give warning to uh, to pedestrians and cars to, that they're there, and the old the former trams used to have quite a delightful clang. And Liz, you're a musician, you would appreciate what I'm saying here. It was quite a delightful public sound, but the, the new tram warning systems are just so objectionable. And it seems to reflect a sort of deterioration in the approach to the public domain by you know, different authorities. I mean, I'm making probably a big theory here, Liz. I'm trying to think what the new noise is. Can you? Can you make the sound? Well, well, <laughs> mm, I, I, I probably sound like a bad cow. Sorry, <laughs> listeners, but um, it, I mean, but Liz, now I asked you, you had a task to see what you could do. Uh, and is it still ongoing your research on this? Can you just let us know? Yeah, I, I have done some cursory research. I, I'm not professing to be an expert in this area. However, what I have learned is that there are quite a number of different classes of trams, obviously. And in the old days with the W class trams, for instance, they had a real bell that they would ding. And then the later trams at some point in time, and it might've been the D or E class trams, they synthesized the noise. So it was a electronic bell, if you like, but it was still, it was still a bell sound. My understanding now is that they do still have a, both a gong and a horn but I'm not sure, I can't find any information about which gets used when. So from what I've read, it sounds like the latest E-class trams still do have a gong noise, which is, Peter, what I think you are preferring, but they also have that horn noise, your bad cow noise. Uh, and it's obviously the trams that you hear have been using their horn instead of their gong, but I don't know the protocol for which noise they have to use and when they have to use it. Sounds like just, we need to get someone from Yarra Trams on the podcast, Pete. It does. Uh, you need some tram people. <laughs> well, I was just going to remind listeners, this is Planning Exchange podcast uh, on City uh, Matters, not a tramway specialty uh, hour. But Liz, to, to that point of commitment to noise in the public domain, do you think um, there is something about that, that authorities should be take more... Uh, interest in that in that sort of those sort of outcomes that affect public spaces yes I do and I I'm glad you asked that because I must admit if you had asked me that in 2020 I probably would have given you a um a blank look over the screen uh it wasn't an area that I really had that much interest in in terms of these soundscapes and the, the public realm noise but since then I've I've Done a bit of reading into that area. I've also I also attended a very interesting lecture, which I'd, I'll come back to later, um, about soundscapes and the effect of noise in the public realm, and also how to design noises in particular areas. For instance, you know, having having the noise of running water in a fountain, etc., uh, in a public square, it, that gives you a sense of ambience as well, and that noise can play an important part in sort of identifying a kind of, um, you know, the natural soundscape, if you like, in a city area. 
And apparently there are sounds which will assist in reducing your stress and anxiety levels. I haven't done enough research to, to work out exactly what they are, but in general, people say that it's sounds of nature that can help this. And so there are a lot of designers now that are more interested in soundscapes and trying to introducing soundscapes, you know, into man-made architectural areas. I guess acoustics generally, though, um, do form one of those risk factors for um, non-communicable diseases. So things like acoustics, things like um, air quality, all of those things do all uh, factor in together to create an environment that is either positive or negative. Yes, that's true. I mean, it's one of the senses. And, and going back to what Peter was talking about, emotions, you know, it, it is one of those senses that it can evoke different emotions, such as the sense of smell. You know, they, um, if, you, if you smell something that reminds you of a particular place that you visited or a particular food, that can evoke an emotion. So I'm, I'm sure that the sound does exactly the same thing. As you say, Liz, with light, um, with light, um, sound, texture, um, and, but those noises that make people uh, calmer perhaps help with the, and I think this is what you were saying, Jess, about stress levels. And if people are stressed, then they're more prone to illness, uh, different types. Is Would you agree with that? I think so. And actually the the rainfall that we've had recently is probably a really good example of this in in that it, it's the context as well so a lot of people will say oh, i love to hear the rain on the roof it's quite soothing but i imagine if you're in a flood prone area and you were hearing on the rain on the roof it would be anything but soothing so you have to take into a, into account the context of the noise that you're listening to yeah we're all shaped by our experiences um that that's right and um you know, I, I adore hearing um, rain on the roof, um, Liz, because, you know, probably like you, I've been on tank, I've lived on tank water for a fair part of my life. So if you hear that noise, you know you've got water, <laughs> not just for you, but for everything else. So, um, and Liz, anything else you'd like to talk about in the world of acoustics, you know, that, that have come, that's, that's come up, that's surprised you, or there's that part of the question, and also what are you looking forward to? in terms of any acoustic research or things like that? Well, I'm still, I'm still looking forward to my virtual reality concept that I raised in the last um, podcast that we can, did. Can you just, uh, that was a great concept. Can you just explain that again? Well, there's a lot of virtual reality now where you can put the headset on and it, it transports you to a particular area. You know, um, it could be a, a concert hall or an outdoor uh, amphitheatre or, you, you know, a nice piece of um, nature on a clifftop area or something but I'd like to couple that with you know a headset that provides a calibrated noise experience so that you know if your virtual reality headset uh, takes you to an apartment and you live near a rail line you could actually hear exactly what the trains going past sound like so you can decide whether that is a noise that affects you or if it's a noise that you would be happy to to live with um, you know same with if you wanted to buy a house or live near the airport you know you could you could see and hear uh, the the real effect of those types of noise sources so I think this area is something that is still evolving um, and hopefully as the equipment becomes 
more accessible and a lot cheaper. And as the technology progresses, it'll be really easy to marry the two and provide those experiences for people. Liz, that sounds a lot like um, what happens in Blade Runner, the second the second version, Jess. I know you've probably watched Blade Runner by now. I still haven't watched it. <laughs> She's terrible with homework, Liz. What, <laughs> what, what, what can we do, listeners? Um, but uh, Liz, that's that's. Um, I did I did a VCAT uh, hearing once, and for our listeners outside of Victoria, that's a tribunal where planning disputes are heard, and someone wanted to live um, near an airport and. The tribunal member was very much an old school type, which was, and he always suggested when he was the city engineer living, uh, working in that area, he always advised people to go and just camp near the airfield to get a feel for what it would be like, you know, just for a day or for an evening. But I think that's where you're, you're going now. Liz, thanks so much again for coming back to our, to our podcast. And uh, I've got a question, we've got a question, as you know, Podcast extra, something for our listeners yes. um, that you've experienced or done? Or yes, watched. and I, I mentioned just before about this uh, area of soundscapes and the podcast extra that I wanted to uh, mention to you is the Melbourne School of Design have a YouTube channel and a couple of weeks ago they had a symposium and there was a gentleman called Trevor Cox from um, Salford University in the UK who did quite an interesting presentation on soundscapes and going on listening walks. Um, my understanding is that they will be putting that on their YouTube channel uh, at some point in the future. So I'm hoping that some of your listeners might be interested and, and look that up and have a listen to that presentation when it pops. Well, Liz, that's, that's tremendous because what we're doing now, uh, listeners, for our episode notes is we've started putting in links to um, people, you know, what uh, the, the people, our guests, and also sometimes they're podcast experts. So we'll definitely put a link up, Liz, for that. Right. Yeah. So Liz, thank you so much, Jess. She's she's one of our best interview subjects by far, I think. 100%. <laughs> you Thanks guys are too much kind. for your time, Liz. We no, really thank appreciate you. you coming back. <laughs> thank and you and congratulations on your 100th episode. And I hope there's thousands more. <laughs> thank God. you. Thanks so much, Liz. You're the best. No, thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks, Jess. Next, we have Mark Shepherd from Connecticut. Mark is a highly regarded urban designer and author who regularly provides expert evidence on urban design matters. Mark is also the president of Vipla, who are one of our wonderful sponsors and supporters on the podcast. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Thanks, Jess, and thanks, Peter. It's great to be back. Mark, you were one of our favourite uh, individuals. book, Essentials of Urban Design, have been released. How, how has that gone and is there a follow-up edition? Uh, well, I'm not a millionaire. Um, I haven't been able to retire. Uh, so you might deduce from that that uh, it hasn't, I haven't seen it on the bestseller lists uh, any time since then. But I, look, I, I saw it at Melbourne Airport last week. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary. Well, I, I think it's what in the remainder the... bin. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's going to start trending much, much better after this interview. Um, I'm sure it, it, it was a wonderful how-to A to Z guide to urban design, and I think it's a very accessible book for any of our listeners. Um, but any, and I've got enormous respect for authors, Mark, because the amount of work that goes into those projects. Do you, did, did it take a lot out of you? Oh, 
Uh, look, I enjoyed the experience. Um, obviously, the kind of editing takes quite a lot of time getting into the minutia, but that's, you know, my personality is a bit like that. So I'm happy to do that kind of thing. Look, I enjoyed the experience. Um, I, I'm not necessarily rushing to put out another one, um, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's a good experience to go through if you feel like you've got something to say. And Mark, do you have any reflections from your podcast interview that we did and did you enjoy it? Oh, I certainly enjoyed it, uh, Jess. I love chatting to people about urban design and planning um, and, uh, you know, you tend to forget that there's a microphone there and it's being recorded, so it's all good fun. Um, I think my biggest reflection listening to it again was uh, how much of a Kiwi I sound. I thought I'd left all of that go, you know, 32 years ago, but uh, apparently it's still there. The Kiwi well, tones. Well, well, Mark, Jess has been trying to get rid of her Bendigo accent and that, that hasn't changed. So, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, I'm not saying it's a... No. And, and, and how have things changed for you since our interview? I mean, um, you've experienced uh, obviously a lot. You're very, very busy with work. Uh, everything else going well? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, the biggest thing professionally, I suppose, was um, somehow finding myself as president of Vipla, which is a huge honour and a privilege and uh, it's a role that I'm enjoying so far. I'm still in the learning phase of that. Um, the other thing I suppose is uh, is obviously COVID, but specifically for me, we moved our office into the CBD of Melbourne um, in December 2019, uh, possibly on reflection, not the best timing. Uh, so we'd been We'd been here for about four months before uh, we were locked down and, and didn't see the office again for a few months. But just watching the CBD and watching the work habits of my team um, has been an interesting experience. And it's certainly changed um, the experience of work, not being uh, you know, in the middle of a, of a team every day. So that, that's been a big shift. And um, obviously that's one that many people have experienced. And Mark, things you're looking forward to? Look, again, I'm going to refer to COVID, Pete, because I think um, although, of course, there are lots of bad things about COVID, there are also good things to come out of it. You know, for, I don't know, when people first started talking about telecommuting, um, it's got to be at least a generation ago. But we know that there's a whole lot of benefits that have come out of the ability to work from home or work remotely from a central office, you know, not least of which is having more personal time um, and, and less costs, whether it's um, environmental costs or, or infrastructure costs in terms of commuting. So I think what COVID has done is it's actually forced us to recognise that there's a lot of change happening in the world and that we can actually reinvent the way our cities work and the way we live and we can reinvent them for the better so you know there's a lot of discussion around our suburban activity centers and how they've got a boost um, the, simple things like all of the bike lanes that were put in during the first year or two of COVID these are all really positive changes and even I think just recognizing that we can change is a positive thing because as we discussed um, last time on the interview, I think there's a fear of change in the community. So anything that forces us to accept that maybe there are alternative ways to do things is good. And so I'm looking forward to seeing the positive impacts that come out of um, all of these changes 
as as they start to settle down um, and our cities change in their form and our buildings change in their form. Oh, sorry, just going to no, jump in go. there. And, and presumably that might also have some challenges to planning orthodoxies in terms of public transport, um, rail, heavy rail, trams, the way public transport's structured. So there's a it's it's a challenging, interesting time for planning theory as well, I imagine. Absolutely. So, you know, really for hundreds of years, the, the fundamental driver of city form has been that if you're running a business um, and, you, and you want to draw on a labour force, you've got to be located in the middle of the city where you've got the greatest pool of labour available to you. So you get this really dense core and you get a hub and spoke system of transport with all of the railway lines and roads leading into the city centre. And that of course means that we get a lot of congestion um, and we're constantly trying to keep up with the number of people trying to get, to get in and out of the centre of the city. Now, all that changes if half the time we're working from home or working in a local suburban centre. And so, you know, it, it calls into question perhaps things like uh, in Melbourne, you know, the, the Metro Rail Project, which is all about bringing people into the city centre um, and suggests that other transport investments, which are around connecting um, other parts of the of the city might make a lot more sense. So yeah, there's a huge impact I think on that. And and one of the difficulties, of course, is that we make these transport investment decisions, um, and then we finally build them, complete them, you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years later. And so they're one of the least adaptable parts of our cities. At least with our street designs and our buildings, we can try and build in some adaptability, but it's, it's really difficult with transport. We've got to try and see the future, which is becoming increasingly difficult because of the pace of change. And Mark, do you think COVID killed the prospect of the driverless car? That used to be something that we spoke about in the early days on pretty much all podcasts that we did. Um, yet I don't think anyone's mentioned it in, you know, probably at least five years. Yeah, I don't think so, Jess. Um, I, I think it's, it's time just hasn't come yet. You know, the, the technology is still developing, but I think it's probably a more a matter of society becoming comfortable with decisions being made by a machine rather than humans. And even though the statistics tell us that machines will make much better decisions on average around driving than humans, there is still a resistance to that. And of course, there's a lot of infrastructure that's got to be introduced. So I think that we're still, you know, a decade or two from that becoming um, common. Of course, there are driverless vehicles already, but they're not common in our cities. So, no, I still think that's coming. I think the benefits in terms of, um, you know, uh, accidents on the road and, and uh, deaths and injuries on the road are too significant um, not to pursue it. Um, I think the interesting thing is what it does in terms of, traffic congestion you know what we're really trying to do is have fewer cars on the road and encourage people to use other modes of transport but if driverless cars become the cheap mode of transport which it may well do when you take the, the labor component out of it um that might work in the opposite direction so that's all still all to play out i think but but i'd be surprised if we don't still get um driverless cars in some form in the next 10 or 20 years just Mark, I'm going to go out on a limb 
I, you know, the driverless car hype last time we spoke is um, was really overplayed. I'll make a prediction, a very uh, probably unpopular one. EVs, electric vehicles, it's totally overhyped at the moment. They are going to fade. Um, yeah, well, I'm not sure if I agree with you. Well, Peter, well I mean, maybe I not fade, this. but not be the. They're not. They're not going to be the dominant force because of the infrastructure issues you mentioned, the trouble with the batteries, the uh, charging, the inequity of it all, and the, the cost of it. So anyway, that's my prediction, Mark. What predictions do you have, if any? Not, not just <laughs> well, about I'm, EVs. I'm going to make the reverse else. prediction on EVs. Um, since we're on that, um, I think ultimately the environmental considerations. Um, you know, whatever view people take about. Uh, climate change. Um, I think there's a clear trend towards uh, regulation and um, pricing mechanisms, which will eventually push people away from uh, uh, fossil fuel vehicles. Now, whether hydrogen has a role to play, I don't believe it does in um, private cars. It may be that it does in terms of larger vehicles, trucks, and so on. So, my expectation is that. Um, that that uh, we will be moving to uh, electric vehicles more, um, but I'm not going to argue with you on that uh, now. Uh, what other predictions would I make? Well, I think that uh, obviously the way we work and the way we live is in a state of flux at the moment. One of the things that I can see happening with that is the rise of local co-working spaces, and I don't know whether this is happening much yet, but I think that. Um, whilst we all enjoy the benefits of not having to come into a CBD office every day, um, some of us are missing the social aspect of being in an office. And so um, I can see the rise of co-working spaces in local centres where you rent a desk and you're not working with um, colleagues from your own organisation, but you're working alongside other people. Last time we spoke a bit about third places. And I think there's a bit of a link here that workplaces will become a kind of third place where it's a bit of a mix of socialization and work. And so that's something that I can uh, see happening and I, and I really hope will happen because I think it'll be the best of both worlds, if you like, in terms of uh, an enjoyable work experience, but close to home. I agree with both of your predictions there, Mark. Sorry, Pete. Um, <laughs> but in particular with the co-working spaces, I think as well, they have such great potential to really become the heart and soul of some of our suburban centres. Um, you know, the draw of people that they have and the integration that they can play on the street at street level, I think is really monumental. But um, I guess the other observation I'll make there is that simply... Uh, space that people don't have the space necessarily to be working from home, particularly um, if there's if there are a couple having two people working from home at the same time is going to become harder and harder as housing affordability becomes more and more of an issue. So I think that's a really really accurate prediction, and I can't wait to reflect on that in another eight eight to ten years time when we um, come back and talk to you. Perhaps we should all invest. Hundred percent. Now, Mark, the other question I had for you was um, going back to what we spoke about last time around middle ring suburbs and how we retrofit them appropriately. Do you think this has happened since we last spoke to you? What are you seeing? And 
Uh, do you have any other um, observations of this area? I think there's been some progress, Jess. There's certainly, uh, you know, more medium density development occurring in the suburbs. And I suppose the wave of densification, you know, every year it moves out another notch. So probably eight years ago, we weren't seeing a lot happening in somewhere like Sunshine, which is a sort of a middle to outer suburb of Melbourne, whereas now, you know, there's a strong market out there for townhouses. So I think it, it is happening. I don't know that the quality is what it could be. And I think that's because mostly it's taking a single house block and putting units on it. And you might get three units on that block, but because you're trying to um, shoehorn them into a lot that wasn't designed for that purpose, you know, the, the, the way those homes are arranged isn't necessarily a great outcome. So I, I think that it would be great if we could somehow um, uh, uh, incentivize consolidation of lots in order to get more appropriate forms of medium density housing. And, and one of the consequences is green space. You know, we're becoming increasingly aware of the importance of um, green space from a climate point of view, apart from anything else. Uh, and the problem with unit developments is the whole block's taken up by the dwellings and the driveway running down the side. And uh, that's, that's gradually eroding the amount of green space in our suburbs. So yes, development's happening. I think the comfort level of the community with scale is gradually um, increasing, if you like. You know, the community's gradually more comfortable with two and three-storey buildings and suburban areas and perhaps four and five-storey buildings in the activity centres in the suburbs. Uh, but it's a pretty slow process. Mark, you're president of VPLA, as, as you mentioned, and for our listeners outside of Victoria, you might mention, you know, what VPLA is, but it, the organisation has got a very proud history of promoting new ideas. And my final question to you is, how important is the um, propagation of new ideas and listening to perhaps dissent sometimes? Yeah, well, first to explain VPLA. So VPLA stands for the Victorian Planning and Environmental Law Association. So it's an association for anyone who's involved in the planning process. And that includes planners, obviously, and planning lawyers, but it also includes um, a range of other disciplines, such as traffic engineers and architects and, and even urban designers. And so that's really why the association exists to um, enable uh, people in this industry to interact between the disciplines. And I think that's an incredibly valuable thing. Uh, yeah, look, absolutely provoking new ideas, um, providing space for dissent, I think is critical. I can't remember exactly the discussion we had last time, but I certainly, I think that the term experimentation came up and I feel very strongly that it's important that we do that because it's only through experimentation that we um, find better ways of doing things. And, you know, again, COVID's a great example of that. So we suddenly saw this flourishing of um, parklets, you know, where we took a curbside parking space and put a little, a bit of a park there or some outdoor dining. We suddenly saw temporary bike lanes pop up. So it was a, it was a really good illustration of the way that we can try things. We can experiment 
and the cost is fairly low. And if it doesn't work out, we can remove it or try something different. But our mindset has been very much one of, no, we know what the future looks like. We're going to design it now and we're going to kind of set it in stone um, and it won't change. And that's just not the world we live in. You know, the world is constantly changing. And so I think we need to give ourselves the space to experiment and to try things. And that includes the public realm, the sorts of examples I've been talking about, but it also includes development. And so, you know, this um, current uh, planning approach that we have, which is, I think, one of overregulation, which is really de designed to prevent the worst outcomes, but in so doing it, it also prevents experimentation. And I think that's something we need to, to, to work on. I think there's a better balance to be found in there to enable our really creative designers to come up with new and better solutions that currently they're hindered from doing by the planning system. I love your philosophy there, Mark. Um, I suppose there's that saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Um, yep. It comes to mind, and also um, the future is our friend. But um, Jess, it's always good listening to our guests because I realise how many smart and articulate people are out there. But it uh, also leads to me to think about some of my inadequacies. But Mark, your podcast extra for our listeners, something you've watched, seen, done, read, something you can recommend? Yeah, look, I, I wanted to um, recommend a book actually. Um, it's a book called Anti-Fragile uh, and, and the subtitle is Things That Gain From Disorder. And it's by a guy called Nassim Taleb. And it talks about this idea called anti-fragility, which, which I think he coined the term. And it's a little bit like resilience, but it's taking resilience a step further. So resilience is the idea that um, you can um, survive a shock but anti-fragility is the idea that you can actually benefit from a shock. You can actually improve. And it's this idea that it takes a provocation like a shock to actually push us into trying new things. So some of the ideas that we've been talking about in relation to um, what COVID forced us into doing, many, many of those things I think are really positive, only became because of the shock of COVID. And so this book, it's, it's, a, it's not an easy read, uh, but I think it's a really important book to put some philosophy behind why we should be um, uh, uh, open to experimentation, why we should have systems which allow different options to be proceeded with simultaneously uh, and how we can benefit from that and, and move forward. Very interesting. I'll add that one to my reading list for sure. Um, well, thanks very much, Mark. We've come to the end of the interview again. Um, but thank you so much for your time and your observations second time round. We've really appreciated your contributions and, and support in the podcast over the years. Thanks, Jess. And can I just say congratulations? It's a huge achievement getting to 100 podcasts. Uh, I feel very honoured to have been in two of the first 100. That's, uh, that's great. And, You're a good uh, sport, I'm, Mark. You're a good I'm sport. I'm looking forward to the next 100. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, 
please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And finally, we have Nicola Smith, the director of Niche Planning Studio and a very dear friend of mine. Welcome back, Nicola. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Peter. Nice to be back. Great to have you back, Nicola. And how, how have things been for you since I think we did the interview in 2017? Yeah, it seems a really long time ago and it's really concerning that it was only 2017. Um, so I feel like lots has happened, but it's really only, what's that, five years ago? So, but yeah, everything's great. So thank you for asking. One of my favourite recollections of, um, of your interview, and I noticed this again when I went back to listen to it in preparation for today, was the feature of Florida Low being your ringtone. Is that still the case? <laughs> was that really my ringtone? It just... really was. You can actually, if, if listeners go back and, and I think it's in the middle of the interview, you hear the apple bottom jeans boots with the flare. You know what? So my staff were giving me a hard time the other day because I have Stevie Wonder superstition on my phone and they said, excuse me you've had that ringtone for so long you need to get rid of it blah 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 and they were sort of implying that I'd had it for a good sort of 10 years or something and I thought oh my god and it was the day that um oh goodness it was the day that a, some particular rapper had died and I thought well maybe I should change it to that so maybe I need to just change it back to flow rider maybe just full set that's a good option <laughs> and for listeners this is uh, the planning exchange about city affairs and we do have a sub-segment on uh, ringtones uh, over to you Jess this is what happens when you get two really good girlfriends talking on a podcast I just like to put it out we're not even exactly. in the back room yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I wanted to ask you, obviously, your your career has changed a little bit over the last few years. You used to do quite a lot of work in the green fields, whereas you have sort of changed tact a little bit now. Um, mm-hmm. Are you seeing a lot of innovation coming out of that greenfield work? Or have you seen a lot of innovation, I guess, happen since we last spoke? Yeah, no, good question. So interestingly, about 2017, there was these controls, APRA had put controls on developers and they all of a sudden just stopped buying a lot of land in the greenfields because there was a lot of um, financial controls. And as a business owner, I was going, oh my goodness, I knew I'd had to diversify and I hadn't really, I'd read the play, but I hadn't responded quick enough. And that's probably the answer to the question about why I haven't been doing as much greenfields because we've made sure that we now do really great and interesting built form we do a lot of work in the regions we do a lot of work for councils so that's sort of why that shift occurred from 2017 um but the innovation in the greenfields that um has been great to see a lot of it's actually been some of it's been driven by government and some of it's been driven by the developers themselves so if you think about um back in 2017 when the um you know, developers were sort of in a different sort of market and they were trying to think of an, a competitive advantage. There was a lot of thought around sustainability and affordability, um, looking at built form and medium density. So there was a lot of change that kind of happened pre-COVID or developers were starting to think outside the square. Um, and one of my favourites is a project that we're working on um, for Mormac up in Sunbury because I was trying to think for you what has changed that's a good example. 
and this project is really great because the developer had a real passion for sustainability and wanted to make a change but there wasn't really any regulatory requirements for him to do anything outside the square or outside the box um, and it's one of the first estates that has been able to get council across the line. So it's been a bit of partnership with Hume City Council to get them thinking about using recycled road base, not just for one little bit of the estate, but for you know the, the whole of the estate. Um, thinking about different things like where um, owners then are, um, you know, the things that we're probably more used to getting solar, recycled materials, um, having a think about that circular economy, so building buildings that could be adapted and change over time in the town centre, etc. Um, and they've also got like a community fund uh, where I know in the last podcast we talked about developers like Villawood who are doing, um, you know, the the community buildings and everyone sort of provides some sort of uh, financial contribution to the upkeep of one of these buildings and then they can benefit from them and get swing centres and all that stuff. Well, the next iteration seems to be a um, creation of a community fund and then this fund is then run by a board that is essentially sat on by the community or the owners of that estate and they decide what that fund is used for and, yeah, in summary there, They've asked for a, a lot and that lot could be um, a cafe, it could be a community garden, there's a lot of different uses for it. So um, yeah, it's that's that's something really innovative that's been driven by the developers. And uh, the other side, I guess, is PSP 2.0 with the VPA trying to encourage innovation um, and think outside the square. So they've got a brand new process that they've put in, in train. Uh, a lot of us in the private practice are now running that through a series of pitching sessions, visioning sessions, co-design and seeing what that looks like, but there's no um, on-ground examples yet of the new innovations from the VPA, but it'll be interesting to see um, what that looks like. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in a car and uh, my computer is overheating, so I'm just going to slowly close this window. All right, we'll give that a crack. Anyway, how was that for an answer? That, that, that was good, <laughs> Nicola. I mean, you know, you raised the issue of you know, road surfacing. Yeah. And at the moment, road surfacing is overwhelmingly bitumen. Yes. And that is a byproduct of oil um, refinery. Um, you can't, so with the net zero coming up, I mean, uh, there's, yeah. for every barrel of oil refined, there's about 30% that is used for, you know, other products such as bitumen. So if we're going to stop oil production, mm. you know, what do we do with roads? So, yeah. there's lots of challenges yeah I, there there are and it's it's so interesting the net zero conversation because so I was talking about how we diversified in 2017 and we do a lot more built forms so one of the girls in my office Nomi was one of the um, co-founding members of Planners Declare with Alex and it's been great to see the impact that she's had in our business but also in the industry in um, you know working with developers to look at uh, sustainability and how we can aim for um, you know these sort of reduced or net carbon net zero carbon targets by say city of Melbourne are aiming for 2040 um, because a lot of our developers are thinking about built form and how we can you know minimize impact on the earth and reduce our mission reduce emissions and design more energy efficient buildings um, but there's still a lot out there that need to be prompted and I was in this really interesting conversation uh, last week. I got invited 
through UDIA to sit at a lunch um, where Sally Cap was hosting. So it was about 10 people around a table and there were some big heavy hitters in that room like ISPT, CBRE, um, CBUS, Lend-Lease, et cetera. And all these big guys are all, um, you know, they're all doing things. So they're, they're either building new buildings in the city centre that um, are ticking all the sustainability boxes or they're buying old buildings and they're retrofitting. And the conversation around the table was around how do we encourage um, either mums and dads that own, you know, buildings in the city that they've owned through a trust or, you know, they've been gifted through a, a family sort of inheritance or whatever, how do we encourage them to then, um, you know, retrofit their buildings so that they are not contributing to increased emissions? And apparently if the city of Melbourne want to get to, to zero by 2040, they have to retrofit 77 buildings each year in the city centre until 2040. Like, that's insane. So there's a lot of people out there with all these challenges, but no one's quite sure how to address them yet. Um, and in that room, they were talking about, like, apparently you can apply for, uh, like, I think green loans so that you can access money so you can do retrofitted buildings. And there was, like, um, apparently there's a lot more pressure from tenants rather than just the landlord so tenants want to be you know if niche is in a building we want to be espousing not just you know sustainability um targets and measures not just in what we're putting on the ground in new subdivisions but also where we're renting so then apparently there's a lot more push from tenants up to the landlords to you know retrofit the buildings to um address some of these targets so there's definitely a lot happening in both built form and greenfield in sustainability and Nicola, you do a lot of work outside of Victoria as well, including places like Tassie, which I feel we don't ever talk enough about Tassie. Um, what lessons have you learned from these areas? Are they I'm doing? Like, I'm like, keep it on the DL. I really like doing it. We don't have any <laughs> other planners doing it down there. No, no. <laughs> Are they um, doing things differently to us or is it much uh, the same? They, and I apologise for any Tasmanians that are listening, but they, Tasmania has historically looked to Victoria as the guiding light. So it has been really interesting recently because they went through um, a process of kind of, for people from WA listening to this, like model scheme text or Victoria VPP, kind of coming up with like this standardised planning system, which is their interim planning schemes, um, the Tasmanian planning schemes uh, across the state. And they've been, they've been standardising those. So that's been... That makes it a lot easier as planners to work in Tasmania because you can, you know, look to any of the schemes and they're all they're all similar with schedules, the same as we have the same in Victoria. Um, the thing that's really nice about Tassie is people are really this is the difference with Victoria. It's it's a lot more local. You are dealing with the people that are actually implementing it. You, you don't tend to find that you're dealing with, you know, six different layers of government and you can't figure out how to get through the process. You're 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 working with the head of the planning department and together you're talking about a scheme amendment and together you're trying to um, implement major structure plans or whatever. So that's that's really nice. Um, We've been doing a job down in Tassie where the council, um, the council had us doing a structure plan and that was fine. And then the land owner, um, their family member lived in the US and they approached DPZ, who are the 
original starters of new urbanism. Peter might know about them. I don't know if Jess, if that's a wee bit too old for you, but the new urbanism stuff with Dwayne and um, the like from the US and, and DPZ came down to Tasmania and they, they were highly criticised, to be honest, because they only came once and then COVID happened and there was all this discussion about, you know, did they know Tasmania and they hadn't been there enough. But as a planner sitting on the other side, acting for council, listening to DPZ talk about new urbanism principles and they actually were doing design charrettes online because of COVID, you could, you could just tap into the online charrettes at any point during the day because they were doing it from the US um, and watch these urban designers design up structure plans. So I'll keep my thoughts on what the outcome was because I probably shouldn't say anything, but in terms of the process, the planning process, it was really great to see these guys in action, um, something that you normally wouldn't see in Australia from the US. So yeah, there's a lot going on in Tassie. There's a lot of change. Now, I know that staff development is something that's really close to your heart and that's really evident with your team, um, really close connections with everyone, which I always love to see. Um, what characteristics are you seeing in the next generation of young planners? Do you think they're more passionate than us or are they just more passionate about other things? And how do we make sure that we don't burst their bubbles? <laughs> I love that you said us because that means that you and I are totally the same age. So I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, okay, so I just did a piece for PR, which was really interesting. We were doing at a national level, we were having a look at membership and whether membership organisations were dead, was dead, were dead, whatever. Um, because if you think about any of us these days, you go on to your TV and you subscribe to, I don't know, binge, and then you watch like a series on binge and then you see what else is on binge and you're like, oh, there's nothing there. So then you you stop your subscription and you go join Stan or whatever. Um, and we were then interrogating the different membership groups at PIA because we were interested in is the next generation a generation that will not subscribe to an organisation? Do we need to make it more like member pays kind of thing, or people pay kind of approach? The answer was no, no, membership organisations are still fine and it all still works really well. You just have to present a value. And I think... That work that I did at PR is exactly the same in your, you know, at Tract, at, at Niche, at anywhere. Um, for the young guys that are coming up, you've got sort of Gen Xs who are a wee bit older than me, Gen Ys who are kind of my age, so 40s, and then Millennials, 30s, and then, and then it's like Gen Z, and then I can't even remember lower than that. But um, essentially, the Millennial group. Um, are okay we sort of understand what what the millennials want so millennials gen and I'm being so general here but uh, like to be told that they've done a good job they like to feel part of something bigger they like to have their opinions considered and so I have and I have employed a lot of millennials and I work really well with them and that's easy what's been interesting has been the increase in gen z that's been um, coming into the office and that is back to that value proposition. So they want to be working for a firm that uh, reflects the values that they believe in. And that has then driven, if you think about it, the way that niche has progressed, because a lot of my staff believe in sustainability, believe in affordability, um, are interested in uh, different transport options, are uh, keen on understanding regional growth and so because that's where their passions lie 
then as a business owner, I've been then evolving the business to not just be playing in the field space and structure planning, which I love and enjoy, but also, you know, delving into those areas that they find their passion in. And that has helped um, them grow, I think. But all cards on the table, Jess and Peter. Um, so Niche has been going 10 years this year, which was super exciting. We have a really crazy neon light now that I've had to erect in the office. I'm not too sure if I'm keen on it, but all the young'uns like it, so that's fine. But um, we've been going 10 years, had this rebranding, had a great party. Um, and it's just been interesting because I would say over the first nine years, I think probably about seven people resigned from niche in total, give or take, um, probably excluding students and stuff, but yeah, about seven. And in the last 12 months, seven people have resigned. And that is probably because of a few things. One is because of COVID um, and people just getting to the end of COVID and going, oh my God, I just want to like do something different and I want to get out. And I don't know what that is. And it I just need to shake my life up a bit and that's understandable. I probably feel the same. Uh, but the second bit is that I've always grown my business um, and based it on young people and young values and young attitudes. And so there are a high percentage of younger people that have worked for niche. And so it is those younger people that have been stuck at home for three years who haven't got to go to Europe, who haven't got to, you know, go and traipse around and try different jobs and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think that has been very interesting to see that change as well this year hopefully it slows down hopefully that's it <laughs> and nicola love all hearing all this optimism what are you looking forward to <laughs> yeah i'm not sure that i actually give myself enough time i'm always this is so this sounds like i'm so full of myself but i'm always thinking of other people so i'm always like how can i make that better for that person or how can i make the business better for those people what I'm looking forward to, um, one, I'm really looking forward to uh, an office where we can just stop thinking about, you know, are we going to have to work from home? Are we going to have to work in the office? Is everyone happy? Is everyone unhappy? Like, it would be nice to just be in a space that we are all really comfortable with where we're at. And I think that comes from the re-socialization outside of COVID again, and we're all starting to you know, go for a Friday drink or whatever. So I think that's coming. So that's probably my hope for the business. And my hope for me, I think I've really enjoyed, um, so in the last year or so, I've really grown the WA business, which has been really nice because my family and friends are back in Perth and, and obviously, you know, WA locked down substantially um, and I couldn't really get home a lot across um, those sort of three years. So it's really been nice to see the WA business grow and I've got a couple of really trusted people over there who are just loving working for Niche. Uh, one of them worked for Niche a couple of years ago and he's come back again and they seem to be doing really well, which is great, doing great projects. Um, and that's really nice for me. So my hope is that I get to sort of fly back and forward between Perth and Victoria a little bit more over the coming kind of five years and enjoy, yeah, give myself a little bit more of a break and some family and friend time. And for our listeners outside Australia, the, the Perth to Melbourne is, what is it, three and a half, four hours, Nicola? Yeah. So it's coast to coast. Yeah, totally. Definitely. It depends if you get the tailwind or not, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> now we're, we're moving on to Podcast Extra. I don't, I don't know. Um, something you've read, 
seen, done, watched that you think might be of interest to our listeners? Oh, goodness, really? Um, you are talking to Jess, someone Jess that... Just help like, her out here, would you? <laughs> you are talking to someone that works 24-7. Um, something that I've seen, watched... Or even an observation of something that has caught your attention. Oh, my God, like, you guys you guys literally need to give me a heads up. I don't know. I can't think of anything. Um, That's fine. You don't, you don't have to have one. It's I like got nothing. I'm going to go with zero. I actually, like, I reckon I've read about two books this year. And, okay, yeah, fine. You want to know? Like, in my spare time, this is hysterical. In my spare time, I've been watching um, all trashy shows. I've been watching love island and love boat and all these trash bag shows and the reason that i've been doing it is because i need a break away from work and when we've all been in lockdown we haven't had that break so i think i'm just going to say that um i think i need to spend a little bit more time focusing on myself and having a little bit more relaxation and maybe you've just reminded me of that so there's, well, there's like also we're... no judgment on what your recommendation oh, is so. just we've we've all got our guilty pleasures so um... we definitely do and and the other one actually that you haven't mentioned nicola is you're running you're a regular runner uh, do you know what i just thought of that when you were saying it so <laughs> i um so during lockdown i ran um every morning every morning i think it was maybe three days during is lockdown. that is that so that you can beat me at the corporate try next year ah, don't even try. <laughs> I, that was like that was so un, underprepared just for everyone listening jess had practiced for about eight years and <laughs> um <laughs> and i turned up and wasn't even supposed to be running and you know just like a trooper stood in did the run and jess might have run past me but wanted to make her feel good about herself so it was fine um, <laughs> I've actually so I laugh watching all that sort of rubbishy tv I actually just have had it on in the background while I've been doing different workouts so I'm the one person during COVID that got fitter during COVID rather than I think it was to balance all the bottles of wine but it was like drink wine go for a run do some work it was like on high rotation sounds like a very good routine I think yeah it was great <laughs> Well, Nicola, thanks again so much for your time and for coming back a second time. Um, we've really appreciated your inputs and your support over the years. Oh, so thank lovely. you. I, I just think the two of you are doing a really great job. And, um, you know, you sort of were ahead of your time, to be honest. And it's been really great to be able to talk to my staff about your podcast. And I went through it the other day to look at the different people that you've spoken to. And it's amazing to me the number of people like the people that you've spoken to are all people that I go to as a natural like call for traffic, for economics, for, you know, whatever. You've spoken to all the really interesting people in the industry. And I think you should be commended for having this sort of um, medium to talk through. So thanks heaps. Thanks so much, Nicola. And there's there's literally thousands of people to interview, Jess. So, I mean, you know, one we've got thing, a, we've got like, another good ten years in us, I think, Pete. Oh come on, okay. Well, uh, I'll, I'll if you're going to re-interview me in ten years' time, can you tell me about the question about the trashy TV first? <laughs> I, I will think of a, a more educated answer. <laughs> I, I will, Nicola. But one one of the things is that people are so interesting. Yeah, they, uh, you know, the people we interview, are, you know. Are, quite bright and very passionate and you just learn things that are just you know you will never think of so and you're part of that you're, you know you're part of a great 
tradition that we've got of interviewing really interesting people. I hope our listeners agree with us, but of really interesting and also optimistic people. So thank you so much, Nicola. Oh, sweet. No, not at all. Thank you. Well, Jess, here we are at PX100. Who would have thought? Can't believe it. It's how many flown, how many Jess. years are we up to? Eight years? Uh, eight years, Jess. Yeah. It, the time has flown from when we did that first recording and we stumbled around. We did indeed. Um, I, I'd like to thank all our listeners, Jess, especially those who've been with us from the start. Um, we started not knowing what was out there or what it was. I mean, you didn't know much about podcasts when we I started. I didn't know anything about podcasts at all, <laughs> which well, you, is pretty unbelievable thinking about it now. <laughs> well, well, Jess, you've been an exceptionally good learner and it's been, you've been, I think, a terrific host on this show and um, you've been consistently um, good-natured, generous of spirit, inquiring mind. It's been terrific working with you. Oh, thanks, Pete, as of you. And I think, um, I think our our relationship over time has has definitely evolved. I think probably listening back to some of our early podcasts, we were probably quite polite with each other. Not that we're not polite now, but you know, we we certainly probably weren't challenging each other as much as we probably do now. And listeners probably don't um, don't appreciate what what happens behind the scenes. But <laughs> well, I can assure listeners that when we recorded live, I had to sit enough away from Jess so she wouldn't kick me under the table <laughs> but um no she's kept me under under control most of the time and he I, does I go rogue on occasions though we do and I like doing that Jess <laughs> and you know I, I hope our you know give it a go and it is an amateur production uh, dear listeners we we try our best we we we're a bit rough sometimes and we have some gaps but I hope you appreciate that um it's done with our best endeavors and I hope our give it a go approach has been a positive inspiration to others to give it a go, Jess. Definitely. I think, um, you know, we, we could have spent a lot more time on this, but you know, as most of our list, most of our listeners probably know, we both have uh, full-time jobs as well that, that we do on the side. So this is very much a, a passion project and something that we both do in our, in our own time for the most part. And, well, um, well, you've got a very beautiful plate, uh, Jess. But um, <laughs> you know, we, we've we, uh, dear listener, we set out not to do a podcast about urban affairs where we want more bicycle lanes and more planting trees. We wanted to approach the whole city development and city living from different different aspects. And that sometimes we've had some some might say some wacky uh, guests, um, not core planning people but I think they all add to the mix Jess. Definitely I think um, probably the first couple podcasts in particular were probably a little bit more um, focused around a particular topic um, just inherently the way they turned out but certainly over time we've really I think become or we've probably come into our own a bit in terms of um, you know interviewing and interrogating people and um, finding out what makes them tick and finding out what their um, what their drivers are, why are they doing the work that they're doing and why have they been so successful. So I think that's been really interesting getting to know all of our subjects in such um, in such great detail. And I think just following on from that, the other comment I'd like to make, Pete, 
Pete, is just the that we've been so incredibly lucky and privileged to um, have so many incredible speakers and the generosity of time that those speakers have given us um, is just insane. And I don't think we can ever repay all of our speakers in the way that we would like, but they've been such good sports. And, you know, I think back to, again, some of our early days, we used to take our guests out for coffee beforehand before we recorded the interview just so that we could talk through ideas and um you know structure of the interview and so forth then of course with COVID we sort of stopped doing that and now we don't really do that at all because we record primarily over Zoom mm-hmm. so you know <laughs> it, it was a huge ask probably in the early days that we were requesting our speakers to give us so much time so we've been very lucky with that, don't you think? Oh, Jess, they were so so generous and and gave so much um, you know good faith to us. And um, I'm I'm constantly impressed and 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 humbled by a lot of our guests because they they get behind the project. They really help us out. Um, there's a really good will towards the project, which is as I said, very flattering. So, you know, bless them so much. And and the podcast has changed a little bit, Jess. I mean, we've introduced some new parts. I mean, Podcast Extra Culture Corner is very controversial sometimes, <laughs> um, but also asking people, you know, what they're, what shaped them and what motivates them. So it's it's so much fun, listener, listeners. Um, it's, it's more fun now for me than when we started, Jess. And, yeah, totally um, agree. And it, it's... It's great learning and it's a great privilege to to be where we are, Jess, I think. So peaks 100 and um, I'd just like to say to our listeners, Jess, and, and have you got a message for our listeners, Jess, have you thought? After you, Pete. Well, I'll jump in. <laughs> oh, um, dear listener, I, I really loathe the expression stay safe. And over the last few years, we've had lots of stay safe. And I instead... I would much prefer the expression live free. And I think there's so much bountiful opportunities for us all. We should um, back ourselves and um, give things a go and um, and really embrace life. So, Jess, that's my... I think, my... Um, yeah, I like that. And I think um, along a similar line of thought, um, my message would be... Uh, give it a go. And I think, you know, that's reflective of a very common thread that we've had through a lot of our interviews where we've talked to people about how you challenge the status quo and how do we, how do we get new ideas flowing into an industry that can get quite stagnant sometimes in terms of new ideas. Um, So I think try something new. And I think as well, um, flowing on from that is obviously um, just with our experience with podcasts, um, again, this is something very new for us and it's worked out incredibly well for us. So challenge the status quo, try something new, um, don't be afraid. And Jess, I'll, I've got a commitment to our listeners. I'll try and be better in future. So <laughs> I'll, I'll strive to be a better person, Jess, and a better podcaster. <laughs> So that's all I've got to say, Jess. And uh, dear listener, I hope all is well with you and I hope things keep getting better for you. And I just want to say thank you as well, listeners. It's been 
quite the journey and uh, we look really, we really look forward to the the next 100 episodes and continuing to deliver um, a quality podcast on a monthly basis to you all. And as always, we welcome any suggestions or any feedback that you might have. Um, it can be a bit lonely on podcasts sometimes. We don't often get a lot of feedback. Um, feedback's generally positive, but if anyone has anything they would like to add, please get in touch with us via our email or our socials. Good on you, Jess. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcast, hit the follow button on Spotify or the like button on SoundCloud or the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts. Please also visit our Instagram page, LinkedIn or website for behind the scenes footage of our podcasts and to get the latest on upcoming or recently released episodes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please get in touch via our social media channels or by emailing planningexchange at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Jack Babbage, who does such an incredible job in producing this podcast.